Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Agatha Christie is widely considered to be one of the best-selling authors of all time. She was born in 1890 in southwest, southwestern England, excuse me, and wrote her first book at the age of 30, and then a second book at the age of 36 that was called The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. That book became an instant hit, and it launched a prolific writing career during which she wrote more than 70 detective novels and sold more than 2 billion copies. Two billion, can you say that? Two billion copies. And she passed away in 1976. The aptly nicknamed Queen of Crime was outsold only by the Bible and William Shakespeare. According to websites such as Publishers Weekly and Goodreads, Christie's classic book, Uh, One of her more famous books is called uh, And Then There Were None. It's ranked by these sites that I mentioned and several others as one of the top-selling mystery novels of all time. Uh, This tome is about ten strangers who are invited to a weekend getaway on a private island by an eccentric, unknown millionaire. All the guests have in common is an evil past that they're ashamed to reveal. One by one, each guest mysteriously is murdered over the course of the weekend. And as each stranger falls prey to this unknown killer on the island, their numbers decrease and the terror increases until there were none. Mystery books sell well, I think, because God is hardwired within us a curiosity that's captivated by unanswered questions and infatuated until we get our curiosity satisfied. Uh, Before Agatha Christie came along in the last century, there already was a best-selling author of all time. And today, we're going to look at the mystery of the gospel he wrote in this book. Would you join me as we open up our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 3. I want to encourage you to take out the sermon note insert in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians called Chosen. And you might remember that our theme verse for this series is Ephesians 1.4. I don't remember if I've explained this or how long it's been since I mentioned this, but I like to choose a theme verse or a key verse when preaching through a book of the Bible because it's a one way that I can hammer a nail over and over and over again throughout the series uh, that ties all the messages together. If you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to underline it in your Bible or highlight it on your Bible app. But let's read it out loud together, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
And throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul will remind us, and he has been doing so directly and indirectly, that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were chosen for a purpose. The fact that God would choose us should humble us greatly, and the fact that He would now give an eternal purpose to us should excite us, because it means that our life went from being meaningless to meaningful. So what's our purpose? Well, simply put, it's to glorify God in everything that we do. And so for this reason, the Apostle spends the first three chapters of Ephesians establishing our position in Christ so that he can then explain in the last three chapters our purpose in life as we live for Christ. Therefore, and this is important, and I I haven't said this yet in the series, and I want to make sure I connect this dot for you. Anyone who claims to know Christ as their Lord and Savior should no longer live for themselves, but rather for Christ. Your life is not your own anymore. That is the deal that God made with you when you said, I want forgiveness for my sins and eternal life. He said, fine, but I need your life and I'll give you eternal life. You serve me now. And that's a good thing, by the way. Because living for ourselves is what got us into trouble with God in the first place. Now, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, we'll be looking at today, the apostle explains how the mystery of the gospel has given him the opportunity to share the greatest story of all time. And thus, our big idea for today is this, the sermon in a sentence. It's a privilege to share the mystery of the gospel with unbelievers. It's a privilege to share the mystery of the gospel with unbelievers. Paul is going to show us why it is such a blessing to be able to share the greatest story ever told to a world that desperately needs to hear it. He's going to tell us why we should be excited, as excited as he is to share it and how we should go about doing so. At the end of chapter 2, Paul explained how uh, the gospel actually includes two reconciliations. First, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection reconciled God and men, or made that possible. And then secondly, Paul explains at the end of chapter 2, if you were here last week, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection also reconciled Jews and Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is simply anyone born outside of a Jewish bloodline. In other words, after centuries of Jesus wait, excuse me, after centuries of the Jews waiting for a Messiah to come who would save them, God shocked the world by extending the opportunity to be saved by this Messiah to the outside world, not just to the Jews. And so, As we pick up our study in chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Please follow along with me. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's the first point on your outline. The gospel is a centuries-old mystery revealed to the apostles. The gospel is a centuries-old mystery revealed to the apostles. Now, I realize that um, when we read this passage, it sounds like Paul is waxing eloquent in covering the entire Milky Way with his language here. And it's easy to read this passage and to go, what? And then to read it again and still find yourself going, what? What's he talking about? He's like way up in PhD department, you know, and I'm down in in middle school. I don't understand what he's talking about. So I'm going to do my best with the Lord's help to break this down and simplify it for you um, and for me as well. Notice in verse 1, for this reason. Some translations might say, uh, when I think of all this, but notice that in verse 1, he says he starts out the same way that he did in verse 14. For this reason. Paul wrote this in order to connect what he spelled out in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, to what he's going to talk about now. Thus he's saying, because Jesus reconciled Jews and Gentiles, now, and he's going to launch into a new train of thought here that is the result or the next logical step he wants to take. So he says in verse 2, the stewardship of God's grace that was given me for you. Now, the word for stewardship in, in this verse, it comes from a Greek word that refers to the management of a household or household affairs. Uh, like a servant uh, would oversee the household affairs for a wealthy landowner, for example. Uh, Some Bible translations render uh, that word stewardship in the ESV in verse 2. Some render it administration, which is fine. Or uh, God gave me a special responsibility. What the apostle is saying is this. God, as the owner of the gospel, has entrusted to me, Paul, who's a Jew, with the responsibility of bringing this message to you Gentiles. God entrusted me with this message, so I'm delivering it. That's, that's in essence what he's trying to say in verse 2. He then continues in verse 3, the mystery that's been made known to me by revelation. Now, uh, you know as well as I do that a mystery is something that's previously hidden that's now revealed. So what does Paul mean when he says the gospel is a mystery? Well, I thought you'd never ask. Well... Here's, here's, what it, here's what it means. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God chose a man named Abraham, promised to bless him, to build a nation with him, which would end up becoming the nation of Israel, and to bless the world through him. This is what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. Part of the mystery was how is God going to build a nation of an old man who's past child-rearing years, 
that ends up blessing the whole world? How's he going to do that? Well, then the Lord sent prophets a few centuries later. And these prophets began to describe a Messiah that would come, fulfill the law for the Jews so they no longer had to, offer salvation to sinners, and establish a kingdom on earth, and fold the Jews and Gentiles into one united church. So for centuries, people heard this when they went to Sunday school in their Jewish temple about this Messiah that would come, and there was always mystery wrapped around it. Like, what is this going to look like? How is this going to work? This Messiah is like going to be this amazing person. He's going to do all this stuff. Well, now we know, is what Paul's saying. He was going to do all this through Jesus. What was previously hidden, uh, God's hidden plan was now revealed. God would send His only Son into the world to take the punishment for sinners on the cross, to be buried in a tomb, and then resurrect Himself three days later, conquering death. The Apostle goes on then to say in verse 5, This was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations, but now we know what the gospel looks like. We know what God was planning to do this whole time in redeeming the world or offering redemption to the world. So, the gospel is a centuries-old mystery that's been revealed to the apostles, and the apostles then wrote about it and preached it and passed it on to us. So, what does this have to do with anything? Why is this important? Well, it brings us to point number two, which is found in verses 7 through 10. Paul says, uh, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone that is the plan of the mystery, hidden for all for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's number two in your outline. Christ followers are called to be messengers for the mystery. Christ followers are called to be messengers for the mystery. In verses 1 through 6, Paul described the centuries-old mystery the gospel unveiled. Well, now he begins to talk about the ministry he was given because of this solved mystery. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, the apostle writes that uh, he had been entrusted with taking the gospel to the Gentiles while Peter had been assigned to take it to the Jews. And so, unlike most of us, Paul's conversion and call to ministry came at the same time. Uh, some of you might remember it in the book of Acts, chapter 9, where God meets Paul on the Damascus Road and radically changes his life. So thus, when, when Paul talks about uh, either his conversion or his calling, he's usually blending the two because they both happened at the same time. Now, as I studied this passage this week, I repeatedly asked myself, how, what is Paul trying to say here, and how is it relevant to us today? 
and, and what, what, what's the point? Here's, here's what I think he's trying to get at. I think the apostle is implicitly saying we should spread the gospel just as he is doing. And we should do it the way he does it. Okay? I'll repeat that again. I think the apostle is implicitly saying we should spread the gospel just as he was doing and that we should do it in the way he does it. This certainly lines up with uh, how we encourage other churches to follow his example. He wrote to the Corinthians, imitate me as I follow Christ. And he said similar things to uh, the Philippians and the Thessalonians. So, in verses 7 through 10, let's break this down. Based on Paul's example, how should we go about sharing the gospel? Well, here's letter A. With personal testimony. We should do it with our personal testimony. In verse 7, Paul says, according to the gift of God's grace, by the working of His power, the apostle seems to be referring to his conversion experience on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. Like Paul, all of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior have been called to spread the gospel. And like Paul, our personal testimony should be one of the tools that we use. Now, spreading the gospel is commonly called in Christianese to witness. Uh, That's the title of the sermon, chosen to witness. To to witness is simply to declare the gospel, to to speak it, that, that Christ came, He died for sinners, was buried, resurrected three days later so that anyone who would believe in Him, repent of their sins, and trust in Him for their salvation would be forgiven and have eternal life. So it's to declare that message and to testify how it has personally changed your life. Your Christian testimony should consist of three parts. First of all, what was your life like before you knew Christ? What sin patterns were you in bondage to? What was your life looking like? What did you hope in? What did you find your identity in? What did you love before you knew Christ? Secondly, it should talk about how you came to know Christ. Who explained the gospel to you? Uh, Was it a friend, a preacher, a grandmother? Did you go to a vacation Bible school or uh, some youth camp? And then thirdly, how has the gospel changed your life? How is your life different now that you know Jesus versus before you knew Jesus? It's your powerful first-hand account that Jesus is still living and active today. Lyman Beecher was a prominent and influential minister of the gospel in 19th century New England. Uh, He was once asked how he was able to do so much in and through his church. His answer was, was this, quite simple. He said, I preach on Sundays, and then 400 church members go out and preach throughout the week. And I think what he was getting at, and uh, you've heard me mention this before, I, I think it was J.C. J. Ryle who said this, that, that church members have access to more unbelievers and more mission fields than any minister will. Because God has strategically placed you in subcultures and 
little communities, uh, places of work uh, to use you to be a messenger for the gospel. And so, as Lyman Beecher said, I preach on Sundays and then 400 members go out and preach throughout the week. May this be true of our church as well. Next, the apostle shows us we should share the gospel with, letter B, genuine humility. Genuine humility. He says, though I am the least of all the saints. This is Paul remembering that at one time he was a proud Pharisee who persecuted the church before the Lord rocked his world in Acts 9 by basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, now Paul, I want you to build my church instead of killing it. You're perfectly qualified. You are proof, Paul, that I choose the lowly things of the world that nobody expects to do great things through. And so when we talk to unbelievers about their need for Christ, it should be done with a spirit of one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It, it, it should, just as Paul wrote in chapter 2, we should remember that at one time we were separated from Christ, having no hope, and we were without God in the world. And so, so witnessing to somebody, sharing the gospel with them, and sharing your personal testimony with them, should never be done with a, uh, a sense of arrogance or being argumentative or uh, condemning the person and trying to prove them wrong. It should be done with such a sweet humility of, man, I was a mess. And then Jesus came into my life and saved me. And I just want to share that with you so you can experience the same thing I did. Next, Paul says, let her see uh, we should do so with a sense of duty. We should feel a sense of duty. In verse 9, he talks about wanting to bring to light for everyone. You can sense from the text that Paul feels this burden to bring the light and hope of the gospel to a dark and hopeless world. And then he references, oh, this is another Milky Way phrase here, the manifold wisdom of God. I bet you're not throwing that phrase down anytime soon on your social media channel. The manifold wisdom of God. What does that mean? Well, another reason that Paul felt obligated to spread the gospel is his use of the word manifold. And no, men, he's not talking about a part on a car. Some translations render this word multifaceted or rich in variety. The word in the original text is an adjective used in Greek culture to describe, get this, the beauty of an embroidered pattern or a variety of colors that you would find in a, a bouquet of flowers. Manifold, the beauty of a, an embroidered pattern or a variety of colors like you would find a bouquet of flowers. What's he, what's he mean by that? Well, in this case, he's describing God's redemptive plan for the world from eternity past as this beautiful tapestry that he was painting throughout time that's now been revealed in the gospel when Jesus came and was born, grew up and died on the cross and then was buried and resurrected three days later. He's saying that the painting is now nearly complete and it's manifold, it's beautiful. 
We can see now what he was up to as he's been painting all these centuries. Just like you would watch a, an artist who was working on something, you weren't sure, what's this going to look like? Because all I see is some splotches of a couple different colors here. Paul's saying, now we know. And it's so beautiful, it's too good not to share that God loves sinners and wants a personal relationship with them. So, it's, it's a privilege to share the mystery of the gospel with unbelievers. To get to tell them about this wonderful, beautiful, redemptive plan the Lord has. One of the many reasons it's a privilege is that the gospel contains answers to questions the world is asking. For example, the gospel answers the question, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Haven't you heard that question thrown out? Maybe heard it on TV in an interview? The gospel also answers questions like, how could God love me after all the bad things I've done? Or, where will I go after I die? So if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've been chosen to be a messenger for Him. To bring answers to these questions. And the gospel contains them. Next, let's look at verses 11 to 13, where Paul continues, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here's number three in your outline. Jesus provides all the resources needed for witnessing. Jesus provides all the resources needed for witnessing. Paul knows that, he, that witnessing is difficult for his readers in Ephesus. And I think he's aware of the fears they may have in doing it. And so he offers some encouragement in these last few verses by citing some truths that have helped him be a faithful messenger for Christ. And as you've heard me say before, whatever God calls us to do, He enables us to do. It's another glimpse of His loving character. He's a loving Father who will not ask us to do something that we cannot do or we can't do by ourselves. Instead, He'll help us do it. So since the Lord's called us to be messengers for Him, here's a few ways that He will help us fulfill our calling. Uh, letter A, he's given us an eternal purpose. I could do no better in my outline than just repeating what Paul said here, and here's why. According to his eternal purpose, sharing the gospel, here's what I think Paul means. Sharing the gospel is just one of many ways the Lord invites us to take part in building his kingdom and touching eternity. He doesn't have to use people to spread the gospel, but He chooses to because He loves us. And I can tell you from personal experience, one of the greatest joys you can experience on this earth is to be used by God to lead a lost soul into a personal relationship with His Son. It is one of the greatest joys you'll experience. Because when you are a part of that transaction, 
you are changing eternity. Or as you've heard me say before, the angels in heaven stop and rejoice. Luke 15, Jesus said that. Whenever a sinner repents, you are getting to be a part of that. And it is a wonderful privilege. So therefore, what's that mean? Well, just as nations strategically embed uh, spies in a foreign country to do their bidding, the Lord has strategically placed you and you where you are, at your school or your place of work, so that you can be a messenger for Him. This means that earning a good salary, getting promoted, saving for retirement, getting good grades is secondary in importance to the Lord because all those things are temporal. Instead, His primary goal for where He has you is to be a light and to share the gospel as you have opportunities. That is eternal. Thus, our priorities should be in line with His. You are where you are for eternal purposes first, temporary purposes second. The very fact that God would want to use us to make heaven more full and hell more empty should inspire us instead of intimidating us. So please hear me on that. Next, letter B, something else that Jesus gives us is a holy boldness. A holy boldness. Not a, not a worldly boldness. Uh, there's a misconception in our culture that to be bold means to be brash or offensive or abrasive like some professional athlete talking trash. But that's actually not even close to what Paul means here. The Greek word actually, uh, and it's used here and it's used in chapter 6, verse 19 towards the end of this letter. It literally means to speak clearly, frankly, or freely. Uh, I would a couple synonyms I would come up with, you know, in the English language would be to speak with candor or matter-of-factly. Uh, the word the words mean it, it's talking about communicating with someone without emotion, just matter-of-factly. Well, I was a freshman in college in 1991 and God had been convicting me about my sin, and he sent a linebacker on the football team to witness to me, and long story short, I ended up giving my life to Christ at a Christian conference for athletes because I realized I was a sinner, I needed to be forgiven for my sins, and I needed, I needed eternal life. I was empty, I was unsatisfied, and trying to fill my life with all sorts of other sins. So, that's boldness, candor in Scriptures. It's not, let me tell you what was wrong with me, so then you understand what's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not that. You need to repent now <laughs> before you lose everything. No, 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 no. This is something that the Lord can give us, a, a holy boldness if we do our part to make the most of every opportunity. Let her see, the Lord also gives us access to Him. This is a reference to prayer. In our witnessing, it's not only important to pray for opportunities to share the gospel with our loved ones, friends, and co-workers, but also to pray for the softening of their hearts towards the gospel. Praying for the salvation of unbelievers is, it not only prepares their heart to receive the seed of the gospel, but it also prepares our hearts 
to share it in love. To share it with gentleness and respect, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. So seeing the gospel transform a rebellious sinner into a repentant saint takes spiritual power that we do not have. And so thankfully, the Lord knows this, and He opens the doors to His throne room so we can approach Him and ask for His power to do what we cannot. Thus, verses like Hebrews 4.16, which is one of my favorite prayer verses. It's such an encouragement. Let us then, with confidence, approach the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Love that verse. And that certainly is true when it comes to our witnessing. So it's a privilege to share the mystery of the gospel with unbelievers. And Jesus gives us the resources we need. We have an eternal purpose, a greater cause that we're living for, a holy boldness to speak calmly, matter-of-factly, and we have access to Him in prayer to ask Him to help us speak clearly and confidently and to pray for the softening of the unbeliever's heart. Well, how should we apply this? What do we do now? Jesus said in John 13, 17, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, all in favor of being blessed? I know I am. So thus, I've committed my life to, when I read God's Word, I do my very best, by God's grace and with the help of His Spirit, to do it, to do what it says. So here's the first application that comes to mind. Fear God and love souls. Fear God and love souls. I wanted to make this as succinct as possible so you wouldn't have a long sentence to write down, so I'm going to unpack this here. There's been statistics out over the years in books, uh, published on different websites, journal articles, that show the number of professing evangelicals who shared the gospel in a given year is very, very low. I mean like lower than 10 to 15%. And I have wondered all these years what the stripped down problem is for American evangelicals. When you consider how much we've been blessed with great preaching, great books, all these resources that we have that no other country in the world has, in their churches, and yet, why do we not share the gospel more often? And so I've wrestled for a long time as to, you know, what is the, if we strip away all the other stuff, what's the root, root, root issue down at the heart level? Why don't we do this when the Lord makes it clear we're supposed to? And I think I've come up with two reasons. First, I don't think many evangelicals take Jesus seriously when he said in Luke 9.26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I mean, have you ever thought about the significance of what Jesus is saying there? 
Yeah, 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 you can, you'll have eternal life. But, he seems to be saying, you can be forgiven and have eternal life, but when he returns or when you stand before him, he could be ashamed of you because you were ashamed of him. Do you find that a little disturbing? I know I do. And so I think what Jesus was trying to say is, you can't claim to love me and fear people. Those two things are incongruent in the Scriptures. They don't, they don't go together. Instead, we're supposed to fear God and love people by caring about where they will spend eternity. I think this is why Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, another reason, I said I had two, that I think evangelicals don't share their faith, why they don't do it, another heart issue, is I don't think we see others the way Jesus sees them. And what I mean is that we only look at the physical while ignoring the spiritual. Jesus, Jesus did the opposite. He always looked at a person's spiritual condition first, where their heart was, their soul, and then their physical condition second. Now, it, it doesn't mean we know from the Gospels that Jesus healed people, but He healed people who had physical conditions in order to make a spiritual point. And most of those people, just about all of them that were healed by Him, were born again and followed Him because they were so grateful for being healed. And so, in order to do this, to see people the way Jesus sees them, I think we've got to put on the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2.16. We need to put on the mind of Christ. In other words, we need to see people the way Jesus does by looking at them through the lens of Scripture. Like like putting on Bible glasses, and we, we look at people through the lens of Scripture. What does Jesus say about this person as opposed to what I feel about them physically or their physical condition? Because the condition of their soul is more important. You see, when we start to really fear the Lord and to care for souls, then we'll start to pray for the salvation of unbelievers in our lives. And we'll ask the Lord to give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. And we won't be afraid to lose a relationship by bringing Jesus up because we care more about their soul than we do the relationship. So, fear God and love souls. Next, second application that comes to mind from this passage on witnessing is learn how to share the gospel and your personal testimony. Learn how to share the gospel and your personal testimony. There's a myth out there, I think, in American evangelicalism that learning how to share the gospel and your personal testimony is only something that um, Green Beret Special Forces Christians do. That's for like the elite, the best of the best. But, you know, the rest of us mere mortals, our average Christians, you know, we don't need to know how to do that. Well, 
It's a myth because it's not true in the Scriptures. Now, I think a few reasons that we, well, one big reason, excuse me, we don't learn how to share the gospel or our personal testimony is that the adversary lies to us. He lies to us to keep us from sharing the gospel because he hates the gospel. He doesn't want people to hear it. He does not want heaven populated. Instead, he wants his kingdom and hell populated. And one way he wants to make that happen is, I just if I could stop the Christians from sharing the gospel, if I can get them to be ashamed and embarrassed and to fear losing friends and offending people, my kingdom's going to grow down in hell. So here's a few lies that he tells. Uh, Satan tells us that you need to know the entire Bible and have the answers to the world's hardest questions first. Or he says, if you mess up presenting the gospel to an unbeliever, it'll be your fault when they go to hell. Not true. Or he tells another lie like this. If they reject the gospel, they're actually rejecting you instead of Jesus. Or here's another common one. If you share your faith with someone, they'll never be your friend again. Also not true. Lies, 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 lies. All lies. But we believe them. Instead, we need to learn how to present the truth of the gospel in our personal testimony in less than 10 minutes. And it's not as hard as you might think it is. I've shared a simple gospel presentation before uh, using the acrostic F-A-I-T-H, faith. Uh, If you lost your copy of that, um, shoot me an email and I'll reply and I'll send you the PDF of that. It's a Simple gospel presentation that you can get through in five minutes with somebody. Um, There are other simple gospel presentations you can find online that you can carry in your purse or in your wallet in case you get an opportunity or tracks that you can keep with you that also can be helpful so that you're ready if the Lord gives you an opportunity. See, we have nothing to fear in witnessing because the Lord's already promised to help us. Isaiah 41 Verse 13, one of my favorite verses I read when I'm discouraged. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. I am the one who helps you. That's a good one worth memorizing. Well, back in 2006, Lloyd Goldston and his family lost their one-year-old boxer named Boozer while moving from Tennessee to Alabama. Boozer was a gift for Goldston's 13-year-old stepdaughter, Megan, who picked the boxer out of a litter, dubbing him as the one for us. Well, when he disappeared, they searched and they searched for Boozer, but were unable to find him. Saddened by this loss, it was heartbreaking, the family finished their relocation to Alabama, And eventually they got more pets. But they saved some pictures of their beloved pup, who they'd only had for a few months. Nine years later, in 2015, another family turned their dog over to the Foothills Animal Shelter in Golden, Colorado, because they could no longer take care of it. 
Apparently, they'd adopted the dog from a boxer rescue group in Tennessee years earlier. The Colorado shelter said the Tennessee rescue group should have checked for a microchip, but they scanned the dog anyway just to be sure. And they found Boozer was registered to the Goldson family now living in Alabama. The microchip scan led to an email discussion between Goldson and the Colorado shelter workers. And after exchange of photos to verify the dog's identity, they realized they were looking at the same dog. Elated by this, the, by the surprising news, the Goldstons uh, jumped into their SUV. Lloyd grabbed his two children, Megan and Will, and they drove 18 hours from Alabama to Golden, Colorado to go pick up their dog and experience a joyous reunion. There's an actual picture of when they got him back. You see the family there in front, and then behind them are the shelter workers. A spokeswoman for the shelter told a local news station, quote, to say it was emotional would be an understatement. Boozer is naturally a friendly dog, but about 15 seconds went by, and you could tell it really hit him. He got even more excited. It truly was one of the neatest things I've seen, and I've been in animal welfare for four, 15 years, end quote. And Megan, who's holding the leash there in the picture, she's now 23 at that time. She was engaged to be married just a few months after this was taken. And so she got her dog back just in time for him to be in her wedding. Now, that warm and fuzzy feeling I hope you have in your heart right now, and if you don't, I have concerns for you, <laughs> or maybe the tear in your eye because you're a dog owner like, like I am. When you hear this story about a dog being reunited with his family nine years after being lost, that's the way the Lord wants you to feel about lost people being reunited with their Heavenly Father. Now, what would motivate a father and his two children to drive 18 hours to recover a dog they hadn't seen in nine years? It's simple. They loved Boozer. They loved him. And when we love people or love someone, something, we will do anything for that person or thing. So this leads to another question. If a family was willing to drive that far to recover their lost dog, how much more should we be willing to share the gospel with lost souls? I think you know the answer to that question. Paul wants us to know that it's a privilege to share the mystery of the gospel with unbelievers. And I hope you see that too. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.com.
www.ethicsforgood.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.